Hey, good morning. Please take out your Bibles and go to John chapter 7. That's where we're going to begin today, but I'll let you know right now that we're not going to be spending um, any time hardly in 7 or 8. We're going to be in chapter 9 here in just a few minutes, and I want to let you know that's not because I think 7 and 8 are boring, not at all. And it's not because I think chapter 7, chapter 8 don't have anything to say. Nothing could be further from the truth. But I want to encourage you to read those two chapters on your own because when you do, you're going to find that these two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, contain <clears throat> this fascinating back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And in those two chapters, they debate a number of issues, many of which we have already covered at length in this series. Primarily, they, they go back and forth over who exactly is Jesus. They want to know more about his identity. Jesus, again, will identify himself as coming from the Father and how he is about his Father's business and that his role is to glorify the Father. And then they have this discussion about, about Abraham. Well, we follow Abraham, and Jesus says to them, let me tell you something, guys. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Of course, this sent them into a, 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 a frenzy. They couldn't believe that, that Jesus was claiming exactly what he was claiming. By saying, I am, and before Abraham, it's like Jesus saying, hey, God and I are one, which is exactly what Jesus was saying. Well, throughout these two chapters, this is a very difficult truth for the religious leaders to wrap their minds around. They cannot come over and see that he is the Messiah. And so they make up some things in these two chapters. One of those is that they go, well, Jesus, you're demon-possessed. That's, that's what it's got to be. All of this stuff is from demons, which is laughable. And then, and then they said, Jesus, you're a liar. We don't believe any of this stuff. But Jesus says to them in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, Jesus' message is very consistent. Believe in me. Follow me. In me there is life. And now he says, I am the light of the world, which is along the same kind of family of the things he's been relating himself to. I am living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he says in verse 31 of chapter 8, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So these people that Jesus was talking to, they were not interested in being set free from anything. They didn't want to know the truth. They didn't want to believe Jesus for nothing. And so ultimately, after this two-chapter back and forth, they are pretty much done with Jesus. They're ready to arrest him. They make several attempts. They're unable to do so. And out of frustration and what they think Jesus is blaspheming, the Bible says that they pick up rocks and they're ready to kill Jesus right there. But then at the very end of chapter 8, it just says that Jesus slipped away in the crowd and they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. Again, this is another example of how Jesus is completely in control of everything that's happening. The timeline to the cross is on Jesus' terms. He's not going to go sooner than when he's ready. So they were unable to do what they wanted to do. So let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, please read chapter 7 and chapter 8 on your own because it will help fill in and give you a complete picture of the growing tension between Jesus 
and these religious leaders. A tension that will ultimately boil over by the time we get to chapter 18. And that's when Jesus is like, now it's time to go to the cross. So there's a tension that's building. And chapter 7 and 8 really do paint that picture well. Now, flip over one page. We're going to chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 9 begins with Jesus and his disciples crossing paths with a man who has been born blind. Now, he's an adult now. He's been blind his whole life. He's never seen anything at all. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus continues to travel. He continues to heal a lot of people. So, when we read this story in John chapter 9, where Jesus comes across a blind man, this is not an unusual thing anymore for Jesus nor his disciples. Coming across people with significant problems, this is kind of commonplace now at this point. And they come across this man, and it, and it provides for Jesus' disciples an opportunity for them to have a theological discussion about, uh, about why this guy was born with no vision. Ultimately, throughout chapter 9, Jesus will heal this man. However, I think the greatest miracle of chapter 9 is not Jesus opening his eyes, but rather opening his heart to the Savior. And you're going to see that for this man to confess Christ is going to cost him everything, but he was willing to do it. It's truly an inspiring miracle that speaks right to our faith today, that speaks right to our convictions today. So let's read the first part of this miracle. Let's start in verse 1. It says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one will work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. We'll stop right there. Uh, there's a lot to take in, in in these few verses, but I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. I obviously wasn't there. None of us were there. But when they come across this man who has been born blind, and he's out there begging for food, it seems that they view him as, as uh, someone who's not needing so much compassion, but rather they view him as the object of their theological questions. Why was this guy born blind? Now, was this a discussion that Jesus and his disciples had been having for days? We don't know. 
Had they debated this before and never got to some conclusion? I really don't know. Have they witnessed so many healings now that now they're starting to question, well, why are they starting in this condition to begin with? I don't know the origin of this question. But maybe they were just having a discussion of why people are born with limitations. But they cross paths with this man, and it's an opportunity the disciples take to ask Jesus a very significant question. And so they're like, hey, Jesus, this guy right here, maybe just sitting there, it's like, hey, this is where the, I feel like they're not really loving this guy right at the moment. It's like, hey, this, take, take this guy. He was born blind. So whose fault is it? Is it because of his sin that caused this, or is it because of his parents' sin that caused his blindness? Obviously, the disciples believed, at least it seems that they believed, that there has to be some reason for why this man is in the condition that he is in. There's got to be an explanation. When I look at this situation, I take a step back and I, and I try to, I don't know how you study the scriptures, but how I do, I try to visualize myself if I was walking with Jesus and his disciples and the conversation and how this whole thing came about. And then when I think about it in those terms, here's the thought that comes to my mind. You know, it's a whole lot easier to sit around a table and debate theology than it is to actually get your hands dirty helping people and showing compassion. Talking about your faith and actually living out your faith, well, those are two completely different things. Now, this blind man, he's certainly in a predicament. He's, his circumstances you might even describe as dire if he can't see and he is begging for food. But it doesn't seem like the disciples... Again, again, I wasn't there, but it doesn't appear the disciples are really tapped in to the great need that he has. They're just more interested in understanding why he is in this condition. Believe it or not, there is a real danger that Christians face today. It's easy for us to circle up in the protection of our church family and talk a lot about God while also neglecting at the same time loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's easy to sit around with other Christians and debate hot topics today that impact our faith. It's something else to turn those words into action. So the disciples, they want to have a theological discussion of the origin of this man's blindness, but Jesus is actually interested in helping this guy's great need. So Jesus tells him, hey, you guys have got it wrong. It's not this man's sin that caused his blindness, nor was it anything that his parents did that caused his condition. And Jesus flips the conversation upside down, and he says, this is an opportunity right here. This man's blindness, it's an opportunity for God to get the glory through this whole situation. And I would imagine the disciples are scratching their head going, I don't get it. He goes, this is an opportunity for God to get the glory. Now, this question, this topic that the disciples raise here in John chapter 9, it is still a hotly debated topic even today. Why are some people born with limitations or disabilities? Or why do people get diseases? Why, is, why do people experience suffering in this world? Many people use that argument today 
um, for why they can't believe in God because of all the suffering that is happening in our world. And I wonder, have you ever had a discussion with anybody before who has used that argument as the foundation for their unbelief? Have you ever had that conversation? Well, I just can't believe in a God who would allow these kind of things in the world. Well, I don't believe that John chapter 9 was ever meant to answer that question. I mean, when John was writing an account of the life of Christ and he's writing the story of this man who had been born blind, I don't think John's intentions is to answer that question. But it does get raised in our text this morning. I'll say a few words about it, although I'm not going to do the discussion justice, but I'll, t- I'll say a few things about it. I think it is true, and I think you'd probably agree with this, that a sinful lifestyle can bring about consequences in the form of diseases or disabilities. We can self-inflict suffering on ourselves and other people. But at the end of the day, the bigger picture is that we live in a broken world. And when God created the world, if you go back to Genesis, when God created and he was done creating, he looked at what he created and what did he say? It is good. And it was perfect. And it was, and it was without blemish. And the things that we think are beautiful now pale in comparison to what they were then. Well, what happened? What changed? Well, Man broke it. How did mankind break it? We broke it by sinning. And in the earliest pages of the book of Genesis, after sin was introduced into what God said was good, then the earth became, the words of the Bible says, cursed. Now, now when it says cursed, it gives some descriptions. And, and these are brief descriptions. It's broader than this. But, but it was after sin, things started to grow thorns. Have you ever picked a rose out of the garden and go, look at this beautiful rose, and then you prick yourself on one of the thorns? Those thorns are a reminder that not all is as it should be, that what was once perfect has been cursed. So things, the, the Lord said to Adam and Eve, you are now going to earn your living by what? The sweat of your brow. In other words, things are going to be difficult. The earth is not going to just give you its crops. You've got to work for them. You've got to earn it now. What was freely giving, given, now you've got to work hard for it. There would be pain associated with childbirth from this point forward. This is part of this. What was perfect is now broken. There was something that shifted after sin entered the world. There was a shame involved that wasn't there before. Adam and Eve felt like they needed to cover themselves. Do you remember? Because they didn't have shame before. Now they got shame, and, and so they cover themselves. Then, then death was introduced. They had to kill for the coverings, and ultimately our bodies. After that point, they break down and they die. Before sin entered the world, we were meant to live without death ever. This world is, is cursed. And it won't be right again until it is redeemed. The Bible tells us that after the second coming of Jesus, this curse will be lifted. So the curse is introduced in the book of Genesis. But by the time you get to Revelation and the second coming of Jesus, it says this curse is going to be lifted. And there will be no more disease. And there will be no more illnesses. And there will be no more suffering at all. So John chapter 9, it wasn't a specific sin 
that caused this man's blindness, not by him or his parents. But the general fact is this, that we live in a broken, cursed world that will one day be made right. And the devil and all of his demons are going to be cast into the lake of fire and everything will be whole again. So Jesus simply points out, it's almost like Jesus saying, you know, quit trying to figure this out. We live in a broken world. This is an opportunity for God to get all the glory. I don't know if you've ever read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, but in that book, he says something very profound, I believe. He says that God never wastes a hurt, and I love that. I really believe that he is on to something huge. What he means by that is that God can use any disease, any disability, any brokenness, any pain, any suffering, any situation at all for his glory. The Apostle Paul, who was no stranger to suffering, he wrote this in Romans 8, 28. He said, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And what that means, it's a promise. And what it means is that none of us in this room are dealing with anything that God cannot use as a vehicle to display his glory. My father, right now, is suffering from a a debilitating neurological disease that has absolutely robbed or stolen his quality of life. Now, neither I nor anybody in my family blame God for it, not at all. We don't like it, but we don't blame God for it. I, uh, I have never known a greater Christian than my father. I mean, he is a, a spiritual giant and a mentor to me. And so I know for a fact none of this is a result of a self-inflicted thing. He didn't do it to himself. I mean, my father, like I said, is a spiritual giant. This is the man who, when I was growing up, I probably was in upper elementary school. We had a little fender bender in the car. That was my dad's fault. And he hits the steering wheel and he goes, nabbit. And he later came to me at bedtime that night and he said, son, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I said, why? Well, I cussed in front of you today. And I'm sorry. I expect better of myself. I mean, this is my my dad. At the end of the day, our world is broken. But one day, it will all be made right again. And if God can use my dad's disease for bringing glory to himself, then I know my dad has already said, I'm willingly accepting of my situation if God can get the glory for it. So Jesus challenges his disciples to be about the Lord's work instead. And so Jesus, he spits on the ground, he he makes some mud with his spit, And he rubs it on the man's eyes and he says, you go and wash that out in the pool of Siloam. And the man obeyed and he went and he washed out his eyes in that pool and he was healed from his blindness. Now look what happens next. Look at verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Can you say, here we go again. Sabbath day. 
Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. But he, he, he put mud in my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, they're talking about Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned against the blind man. What have, or excuse me, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been born, or he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? Verse 20. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or <clears throat> who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. If you've been with us throughout this entire study of John's gospel, then really it's no surprise that the Pharisees don't like what Jesus did here, right? This is not a shocker, especially after you read chapter 7 and 8 later today. They are not happy that Jesus is involved. They are looking for any reason now to discredit this great thing that Jesus has done. And then they bring up this fact Jesus did this again on the Sabbath day. By, and what they mean by violating the Sabbath, he spit on the ground, he made some mud, which is considered working, which is something they're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So they consider Jesus to have worked, and so Jesus now is a lawbreaker again. This man was healed. He was honest with the leaders. He didn't know how it happened. All he simply knew is that uh, who he thinks is a prophet did this for him. Remember, he was blind until he washed his eyes out. He never saw Jesus. He knew it was Jesus. He knew it was his name. But other than that, he didn't ever see Jesus. He just heard his voice. He, he, when he actually became a seeing person, Jesus was not around so the religious leaders right now, they've got a real dilemma. They, they can't deny now that this man who was born blind is now seeing, but this group now is somewhat divided on what to do with Jesus. And their conclusion, some of them, is, well, if Jesus is a sinner, like everybody is saying, and maybe he's demon-possessed, maybe if he's all of those things... How can somebody like that do this? And, and so they're, they're torn on it. But at the end of the day, they choose not to believe this man's testimony. So they bring in his parents to confirm it. And his parents came in, if you, if you were, were paying close attention, they were a little cautious with this, weren't they? They were a little cautious. They, they, they acknowledged, yeah, this is our son. We raised him. Yeah, he was born blind, but they are not about, not for a second, going to jump onto this Jesus is the Messiah bandwagon. They're not there. They're not going to do it. And you would think that his parents would be thrilled, wouldn't you? You would think that Jesus was the answer to their lifelong prayers. Their son is healed. Maybe they were, but they're not going to share that with the Pharisees. 
They're not ready to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord because the Pharisees have already said, if you do, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. And I'm going to tell you, the parents of this healed man, they wanted to avoid that even at the cost of deserting their own son. Um, It's pretty difficult for us today to really grasp and understand what it would mean to be put out of the synagogue. You know, take, for example, the closest parallel would be like take church. If for some reason somebody was asked not to come to church anymore, for whatever reason, I don't know. Well, they can go to, uh, they got two or three hundred other choices (laughs) real close to us. They just go to another church. That's not what this is. To be put out of the synagogue was to be excommunicated from all the synagogues. You weren't allowed to go to any of them. This Jewish person who's been put out of the synagogue is literally cut off from all social and religious and economic and fraternal associations. The family of the excommunicated person had to view them as being a dead person. The Jewish community viewed that person as they would a Gentile, somebody who was not a a legitimate child of the covenant. So to be put out of the synagogue... Was, was an incredible, horrible consequence. And these parents are like, we want none of that. Now, it, I think it has even a deeper significance when you peel back another layer because by the time that John wrote his gospel and it was circulated among the Christians and others, there had been many years that have passed since the blind man in this situation. The, the church was going um, um, and growing um, there was clear lines had been drawn between Christianity and, and Judaism. In other words, the church was the church, and then those who stuck with, with the old covenant and Judaism, that was, there were clear lines drawn. There was no mixture of the two. And so the first readers of John's gospel, I would imagine many of them, when they read about this blind man who, who had been healed and his parents were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue, many of them who were Christians now, probably connected with that because they had experienced the same kind of excommunication for their faith in Jesus Christ. These are people who are reading this and saying, yes, my pronouncement that I believe in Jesus, that he is a son of God, cost me everything. I have been cast out from my family. I have been kicked out of my religious circles, and I've lost everything, my citizenship, my identity, all for Jesus. And I wonder about us today. Have any of us ever been in a situation where we felt like our faith in Jesus cost us something? I mean, like say, boy, if they knew I was a Christian, they would not consider me for this job. Boy, if they really knew that, that what I believed about the Lord, they wouldn't give me the promotion. They wouldn't advance me in the causes of this company. They wouldn't pick me for this trip. They wouldn't want me on this team. If they really knew, I'm going to keep this kind of to myself. Have, have you ever thought, my faith, I'm keeping it hidden. It doesn't cost me anything. Do, do you own a business? And have you ever thought, boy, if my business ever um, got associated with faith in Jesus Christ, I would lose business. It wouldn't grow the way I wanted it to grow if they really knew deep down that the owner or the leader of this company was a follower of Jesus. 
Have, have, has your faith ever really cost you anything? I, I've often wondered how these early Christians were able to endure such persecution that they were put under. I can tell you how. Is they had their faith in Christ and that is all they had. They had each other. The church was not about attending a worship service. The church, the body of Christ, um, Christianity, it was life itself. And they drew to one another and that's how they got through every day. It was together. So they questioned this man's parents. And after they're done with them, they're like, hey, get that healed guy back in here. We got more questions for him. Look at verse 24. A second time, they summoned the man who had been, been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man. They're talking about Jesus. We know he's a sinner. Well, in verse 25, the blind man replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, this guy's got a little fight in him, doesn't he? Do you want to become his disciples too? He asked him. Oh, now he's really pushing the button. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as far as this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Do you understand what he's saying? He is challenging the religious elite of the day about their knowledge of God. This is a man who just recently was begging for food and blind, and now he is challenging the religious upper class. I love this guy. Verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Now, isn't this interesting? The conversation comes full circle. What were the disciples debating when they first met this guy? Is he a sinner? Did he do this to himself? <laughs> and the religious leaders are now saying what? You did this to you. You are steeped in sin. You, you're a sinner. How dare you lecture us about our knowledge of God? And they threw him out. This man received the punishment that his parents were so scared that they would receive. He went from being an outsider, somebody was born blind and had to beg for his food. He went from being an outsider to having the opportunity at a normal life to being an outsider once again. But I love this guy's boldness. He doesn't know enough about Jesus to even speak much about Jesus' sinfulness or, or anything they're saying. He just knows that he was born blind, but now he can see. And nothing that you religious leaders are ever going to say is going to make me change my conviction about that. So because he wouldn't say what they wanted him to say, they cast him out. And I think how easy would it have been for this guy just to go along with these religious leaders. Just pretty much agree, smile, wave, get on with your seeing life now and go have a life. 
Go get married. Go have kids. Have a job. Go move on with life. How easy would it have been for him? And no one would have batted an eye at that. But that wasn't his conviction. I wonder how strong is our convictions today? I think there's a day fast approaching, and I could probably make the argument that that day has already arrived. When a go-with-the-flow Christianity and a go-along-to-get-along kind of faith just won't cut it anymore. Religious freedom is more under attack today than at any other time I can remember in my life. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it is open season on Christians these days here in America. TV, movies, the news, you turn on any media platform just about, and it seems like they are mocking Christian values whenever they have the opportunity, while at the same time promoting um, hedonistic values all the time, if you can call it a value. I mean, right here in our country, Christians are losing their businesses or under the threat of losing their business simply because they've got convictions that are grounded in the Bible. The abortion holocaust that is happening in front of our very eyes and being celebrated by many of our lawmakers is a grave reality of a depraved culture. Who will stand against it? Who has strong enough convictions to say, this isn't right, and you can cast me out and do what you want, but I'm not going to change my convictions about these things. This man who, by all accounts, when he stands up to the religious elite of his day, he's not a follower of Jesus. We don't see anything that would make us say he is a believer yet, but he had courage. And may we as Christ followers have that same level of courage so these religious leaders they officially excommunicate him from jewish society they kick him out of the synagogue cut off from family and friends considered dead by everybody else considered a gentile but jesus he came for people who've been cast out he came for people who've been marginalized look at verse 35 this is what happens next jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. So Jesus finds this guy. And remember, he doesn't know what Jesus looks like. So to him, it's just another stranger coming up and finding him on the streets. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he goes, well, tell me about him so I can. And Jesus says, it's me. Somewhere in there, he recognizes Jesus. He knows this is the one who healed me. Maybe he remembered Jesus' voice. He put two and two together. At any rate, he says, Lord, I believe. So up to that moment, the man had heard some things about Jesus. He had experienced some things involving Jesus. But neither of those things are enough for him to believe that, that he was uh, any more than just possibly a prophet. It, none of that was, he had to believe in Jesus. And when he did, 
He became a man who truly became a child of God at that point. Remember, John wrote his gospel so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so John is presenting examples to his readers of his gospel of testimonies of people who met Jesus and did indeed affirm that Jesus was the Son of God. This blind man is a witness, and he said, Lord, I believe. But, but more than his blindness that was healed that day, he was healed from his spiritual blindness. Which brings us to the bigger picture of John's gospel. No, no, Jesus healed of physical things, but he was really after the heart. What do you believe? And that brings us back to us this morning. Perhaps you are right now like the healed man in John chapter 9. You've heard some things. Maybe you've even experienced some things. You've read some. You've learned some songs. Maybe you've made some friends. But you're still spiritually blind. The Lord wants to open your eyes. I'll take you back to something Jesus said in chapter 8. 8 verse 12. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and become like the blind man in John chapter 9 who said, I was blind, but now I see. We've got a room full of people who used to be blind spiritually. But spiritually, the Lord opened our eyes through our faith in him. If you haven't taken that step today, God wants to deliver you from spiritual blindness. And he wants you to see him for who he really is, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God.